the book of Jonah. Jonah was one of the 8th century prophets. And he is one of the unusual preachers of the Old Testament. May we bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the wonderful story of God's love that has been sung about. And we've experienced it through the meeting of the people of the Lord, just a gathering together of folks that love Thee. The overflow of testimonies from that training union hour and the experience that happens when God's people come together. A gathering of spirit-filled persons. And now may thy spirit use the message of the Word of God. May our hearts be moved and quickened. And we pray that no one will leave this auditorium tonight who is not certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that his name is written in the Lamb's book of life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Reading from the book of Jonah, the first chapter, there are 17 verses in this chapter, and we want to read those verses. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against her, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was in danger of being broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and from whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do for thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea raged and was tempestuous. And Jonah said unto them, Take me up, and cast me forth into the sea, 
so shall the sea be calm for you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring her to the land, but they could not, for the sea raged and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the man feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was a world empire from 900 to 607 B.C., 300 years. That's as long as America has been here in this land of the free and home of the brave, from 100 years before the Revolution to July 4th this year is 300 years. Now we're beginning our third century as a nation now, but already this great place, this great body of people called America is 300 years old. And it was for that long that Nineveh was capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire. Interestingly enough, before the year 1850, when people would read about Jonah, and they'd read about Nineveh and the Assyrians, the liberals of that day, the scholars of that day, said why the entire book of Jonah is a myth. Now they would say that on the basis not so much of the fish story, though they didn't believe that, but also on the basis of Nineveh and Assyria. For, said they, we have no record of the Assyrian Empire except in the Bible. And of course you cannot believe the Bible. And we have no record of Nineveh being a great city like it's said to be in Nahum and Jonah. So therefore, it must just be an allegory. It must just be a myth. It must just be a parable. It must just be a figment of imagination. But the archaeologists have digged into the earth. So sacred is that land around the Tigris and the Euphrates River and that little triangle where the ancients said Nineveh used to be. So sacred was it that the native people of that place said, you cannot dig here. But there was one archaeologist who was convinced of the validity of the Scripture. He didn't use archaeology to substantiate the Bible. He used the Bible to unearth the things that he knew were there because the Bible said they were there. And so, he paid the man some money to let him dig a cellar for a house they were building. And he said, if you'll let me dig this cellar, I'll give you some money provided you will let me keep what I find in that cellar. 
Well, the man said it was a deal. The archaeologists gave him a great sum of money, and they digged the cellar, and lo and behold, he found the palace of Shalmaneser and Sargon, and some of the great kings who were mentioned in the Scripture, the great kings of Assyria who dwelled in the city of Nineveh. And now, today, no modern scholar questions even for a moment the place of Nineveh in history and the place of Assyria in history. This is just another chapter that helps to unfold the unfolding drama of the validity, the truth of the Word of God. And we give God the glory for that. Well, Nineveh was a great city. There were eight kings who ruled in Nineveh who had relationships, you might say, with Israel. These eight kings, Shalmaneser II, who ruled from 860 to 825, he began to cut off Israel. Adad Nirari, from 808 to 783, he took tribute from Israel. It was during his reign that Jonah visited the city of Nineveh. Tiglath-Pileser III, they used to call him Old Pull, from 747 to 727, he departed, deported most of the Israeli people. Shalmaneser IV, from 727 to 722, he besieged Samaria. Sargon II, 722 to 705, he carried the rest of Israel carry, uh, captive, and, and it was is Isaiah that preached to him. Sennacherib, who ruled from 705 to 681, invading Judah. And it was Isaiah who said to the king of Judah, Sennacherib will be defeated. He seems like he's a mighty force. It looks like he will win. And from all practical appearances, Sennacherib will come in and take the city of Jerusalem. But God said it won't happen, so don't worry. And lo and behold, Sennacherib was defeated. Azarhaddon from 681 to 668, a very powerful king. And Ashurbanipal from 668 to 626, the most powerful and brutal of all the kings of Nineveh. And it was Nahum who preached against the, his abuses and reminded the people that soon Assyria would be no more. And from 626 to 607, two vacillating weak kings and the great Assyrian Empire fell in 607 to the Babylonians. It was these last eight kings that Jonah carried a message to, directly and indirectly. And God said to Jonah, get up and go. Now when God says get up and go, we need to get up and go. We need to never say no. How many of us, when God says go, we say no, or Lord, I'm not sure you mean it, or how am I going to really know this is the voice of God? How many of you have ever prayed, now Lord, show me what to do? And you began to have impressions in your soul and in your mind and in your heart as to what you should do. And then all practical uh, uh, applications begin to come and all those computers of the mind begin to move. And you say, now, how am I going to really know this is what God wants? Well, what did you ask for in the beginning? If you didn't want to know what God wanted, why did you ask Him? And if you ask Him, and those impressions begin to come and they're not out of accord with the will of God, with the Word of God, who are you to say they're not from God? You ask Him, He'll show you. It's a dangerous thing to ask God for something if you don't want to know it and if you don't want the direction of the Lord. And so, Jonah was a man of God, yielded to the will of God, and he wanted to do the will of God. 
But let's look, look what happened to him. The Bible says, now the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, God's word came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry unto her. Now, Nineveh was a great city. They tell us that Nineveh was three miles long and a mile and a half wide. Greater Nineveh included Calah, 20 miles to the south, and Corsabad, 10 miles to the north. The triangle formed by the Tigris and the Zab was included in the fortifications of Nineveh. This was a great palace, palatial city. They tell us that the walls were several feet thick, so thick, as a matter of fact, that ten chariots driven by horses could ride on the top of the walls of Nineveh, all ten abreast at one time. That's the kind of city that Jonah was called to go preach to. Now, Assyria was a pagan nation, and they did not know God. It was like being called to go and preach to Moscow or go to preach to there are more Christians in Moscow than there were in, Assyria, in, in Nineveh or go to preach to Tokyo, one of the greatest, largest cities in the world, a Buddhist city a materialistic city with fewer than 1% born-again believers in the city of Tokyo. Suppose God would say, Ron Chilton, you get up and go to Tokyo and say in 40 days you'll be destroyed. Well, I don't know what Ron would do. I don't know what I'd do. <laughs> I wonder if God said, Takoi, you get up and go there and preach to, Nineveh, preach to Tokyo and say in 40 days you'll be destroyed. I wonder what Tak would do. He's a missionary down there in one of the isles of Japan. Well, that's the picture. Assyria was an enemy of Israel. She was already making inroads. They had plans to destroy Israel. They were no friend. And we might find a like picture if suddenly someone in this auditorium would hear the word of God saying to them, you arise and go to Peking and say to Peking in 40 days, you will be destroyed. And if God said, I'll protect you, and those communist Chinese cannot kill you, I wonder if you'd get up and go. You'd feel like, well, they've been mean enough to America, and they've been mean enough to us. Or somebody would say, you get up and go to Hanoi, and say to Hanoi, in 40 days you'll be destroyed. I wonder if somebody whose brothers had been killed in South Vietnam somebody whose blood temperature had gone up because of what has happened in South Vietnam since we pulled out the forces. You'd say, all right, I'll go. Now that's what happened. The only problem is Jonah didn't want to go. Now there were some reasons Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah was God's first foreign missionary. There are four or five reasons why God told Jonah to go to that city. For one thing, it was to postpone the captivity of Israel for lust of conquest was one of the things mentioned in chapter 3, verse 8. God said, Jonah, you get up and go and preach because they're trying to conquer the land of Israel. Another reason God intended this as a hint to his own people, that God was interested in other nations beside his own nation. And thirdly, 
Jonah's home was Geth Hafer, near Nazareth, the home of, Jude, of, of the Lord Jesus, 800 years later. And the scripture tells us that the whole life of Jonah was a sign. And so we're to take the ministry of Jonah as a sign of the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, that Jesus was to go and to preach among the pagan Gentile worlds and his ambassadors standing in his train were to go and tell the glorious story. Another thing about this ministry, when Jonah rise, rose up to go to Joppa, interestingly enough, he went to that ancient city, and Joppa was the only seaport all the way from Tyre and Sidon down to Egypt, to Alexandria, Egypt. And Joppa was the place where Jonah rose up, and he was going to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish was the end of the world of those days. It was over in Spain at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. And there were ships that ran regularly from Joppa to Tarshish. And interest, incidentally, you ought to read the February issue of the Reader's Digest that tells an interesting thing about Spain's uh, trade in those days with Gaul. Many of us have believed that Gaul was part of Spain, and modern archaeology is saying that Gaul was right here in the United States in the North American continent. And it's very possible that at the very time Jonah was getting up to go to Tarshish, that there were ships from Tarshish going to the North American continent. Get that article and read it. At any rate, Joppa was the place where 800 years later Jesus said to Peter, what I have called clean, call thou not unclean. Very same city. And so we learn that God was interested in all the nations of the world, not just Israel. And tonight we know that God is interested in Russia. God is interested in China. God is interested in Vietnam. God is interested in Cuba. God is interested in Brazil. God is interested in the nations of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in His sight. This is the reason Madge Smith goes and pours her life out to those Spanish-speaking people in Texas. This is the reason our group go year after year to minister to people whose skin is a different color, whose speech is, language is a different kind. This is the reason we must at once carry on a mission ministry in the city of Bowling Green and out in the county and out in the state and out in the United States and to the uttermost parts of the world all at one time because God's interested in everybody. We don't have any special corner on the grace of God or the interest of God. And that's what God was trying to say to Jonah. Well, let's look what happened to Jonah. I want us to see very briefly tonight a special commission. The consequences of a special commission and the prophet's rebellion and the consequences of his rebellion. Number one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. There comes a time when God can stand sin no longer. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Sodom and Gomorrah were drenched in sin. All kinds of perversion, sexual sin, materialism, indifference to the heart of God, paganism, corruption, all of it. And Lot lived down there. And Lot didn't have any testimony. He didn't even train his own children right. His children grew up, married, intermarried in that city. Finally, God said, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but because I'll not do anything except I reveal it to my secrets to the prophets, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to go down there and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm tired of it. I'm not going to put up with it any longer. And incidentally, I think it was Franklin Paschal who used to be pastored First Baptist Church in this city, now at Nashville, who said, God will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah if he does not quickly bring judgment on America. God said, I'm tired of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to get rid of them. Abraham said, oh God, I've got a nephew down there. Lord, if we could find 50 righteous people down there, would you spare those cities? God said, if I can find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the cities. They couldn't find 50, they couldn't find 40, they couldn't find 30, they couldn't find 20, they couldn't even find 10. I think probably Abraham was such a friend of God, if he'd gone down the scale a little bit longer, said, Lord, if we could just find eight, would you spare them? God, I think, would have done it. But what, look what God did. God knew the heart cry of Abraham. Prayer works, dear friends. Prayer is valuable. Prayer is answered. And so, though Sodom and Gomorrah had to be destroyed, God got Lot out of that city. And Lot forever stands as an emblem of a backslidden Christian who is out of the will of God, living in the very pit of sin, and yet whose heart, in whose heart dwelled the Holy Spirit. I think there are people in this auditorium tonight who've gotten their eyes off of Jesus. There are people out in the city of Bowling Green who've gotten their eyes off of Jesus, and they live just as if they were never saved, just as if they'd never known God. But inside, there's the well of salvation. Even though they are living a life away from God, there's a serious consequence. It's a terrible thing to lose the testimony with your family. It's an awful thing to be away from God, as was true of Lot. Well, what about Nineveh? God said, Jonah, I'm tired of Nineveh's sin, and I want you to go down there and announce doom, announce judgment. I'm going to destroy Nineveh. You go down there and say, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, this was God's special assignment. What has God called you to do? Everybody in this room has been called to do something. Everybody. You've either been called to work in a business, to teach school, to run the business that you're involved in, to run a shop, to work in a factory. Are you in the will of God? It's an awful thing to get out of the will of God, an awful thing to be out of the will of God. If God has called you to be a school teacher and you substitute that call for something else, You'll never accomplish what you could have accomplished until you get in that will of God. If God has called you to be a preacher, 
and you substitute that for something else, no matter how good it is, no matter how close to God you try to live, you substitute something else for it, you'll never accomplish what you could have accomplished for the Lord until you yield to the will of God. And so God said, Jonah, you get up and go to Nineveh. I've got a commission for you. I've got something special for you to do. The will of God is always bigger than we bargained for. Well, Nineveh, that big city, Assyrian empire capital, Jonah was scared to go. Some people say he was a racist. And so because of racial prejudice, he didn't want to go. I do not think that's at anywhere in the Scripture at all. I, don't, I think you can search from one end of Jonah, the book of Jonah to the other end. You don't find that at all. I don't think Jonah hated the Assyrians because of the color of their skin or because of the speech they spoke. I think he was a nationalist. He was true to Israel. His heart was true to God. And the problem is he had connected God with Israel so much that Jonah forgot that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He forgot that God was interested in Assyria and he wanted to redeem Assyrians as well as to redeem Israelites. And so Jonah rebelled. And listen to this in verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He rose up to flee. There came rebellion in his heart. When God has spoken to you about a certain matter, have you ever experienced the rising up of a something inside of here, a seething inside of here that says, I just can't do that? Now, this happens in a number of ways. Sometimes when God speaks to you about your soul's salvation, you're under the preaching of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit begins to deal with your heart, and there comes that pounding of the heart or the quickened pulse beat or an awareness in your soul that what that preacher is saying you need, and you don't know exactly what it is, but you need something that he's talking about. Or somebody has come to you and they're sitting down with a Bible and they begin to explain to you how to be saved and, and there comes that welling up in your soul, an understanding that there's something you need and yet you begin to push that out. And you say, I don't want that to bother me. I don't, I'm not ready for that. I, I just don't want that to trouble me. I've had people, I've gone into homes, talked to them about Jesus and They've said, Preacher, don't bother me about that. And as kindly and gently and graciously as I know how, I'll say, Well, friend, I'm not bothering you, but the Holy Spirit's bothering you. You see, if it were not God, what I say to you wouldn't bother you at all. I don't have any power to bother you. The thing that's bothering you is God. If you're in this service tonight and something that's being said is bothering you, remember it's not the preacher. It's the voice of God beyond the preacher that's disturbing your heart. And do you feel that seething inside that says, go away? I don't want to do that. I don't, I'm not ready tonight. Not now. Don't bother me. Leave me alone. That's what Jonah said to God. Leave me alone. I've known men. I've known women to whom God the Holy Spirit would speak he would tug at their hearts, calling them into some definite service for Christ, calling them into some definite work for the Lord. And they'd say, I can't do it. I'm not capable. Or I've got other plans. Or I can't afford to go to school and get an education because I've got so many obligations and so many responsibilities, I could never do it. 
Beloved friend, when God speaks to you, do what he tells you to do. Jonah rose up to flee. Lastly, let's see the consequences of fleeing, the consequences of rebellion. Now, how do people flee? One is to just turn our heart off. Just turn it off. Go out and start living like the devil, living for the devil, and just leave church out of our lives. I've known some to do that. I've known some others who would try to hang on to church with one hand and the world with the other and would fill their lives with so much worldliness that their spiritual life became diluted and weak and chilled and there was no spiritual fire, nothing exciting because of sin. God has put his hand on you. He has called you into a holy walk. He doesn't want you to be a fake. He doesn't want you to pretend one thing at church and another thing over where you work. One thing at church and another thing over at your store. Another one thing at church and another thing over at your school. He wants you to be what you are for Jesus' sake. And when you're that, people think you're strange. Now they will. They think you're a little bit odd. You know, there are lots of jolly good fellows. They come to church on Sunday, and boy, they, they're, they, they're happy. They sing, and they do this and that and the other. And then they, they go and uh, they go to school, or they go to the factory, or they go to their work, and the others talk dirty. They never say anything about it. Put up with it, listen to it, finally laugh at it. Everybody does whatever's coming naturally to them, and they just get all involved in it. And you know what they say at school? Do you know what they say at the factory? Do you know what they say? Oh, he's a pretty good fellow, pretty good Joe, pretty good Joe. But you never move their life to God. You've lost your luster. You've lost your attractiveness. You've lost your effectiveness. And instead of moving them toward God, they become indifferent to you. I went to Jerry's restaurant one night. A couple of us did, several years ago. No, it was in the morning. It was at breakfast time. And I had my Bible with me. And we talked for a little while, and while we were talking, a man came over and said, uh, Sir, when you get through talking, would you come over to my table? And so we finished talking, finished eating breakfast, and I went over to that man's table, and he looked at me, and he said, I see you have a Bible with you. He said, I don't know why you have a Bible, but I believe you're God's answer to me. He said, I'm from a northern state just passing through this city and I'm so discouraged I was planning to commit suicide tell me is there any hope for me now what put me in touch with that man a stranger perfect stranger what put me in touch with him the foolish thing of carrying a Bible 
just foolish. Some people say, oh, that's going a little bit extreme, carrying your Bible with you. Now, you don't have to do that. But you see, it was an emblem that put me in touch with somebody where there was a great need. That man was gloriously saved just sitting right there at Jerry's breakfast table. That can be repeated. If you are what you are, not just at church, but out in the factory, out in the school, out in the store, wherever you are, if God has called you, if God has his hand on you, be what God wants you to be. Somebody said the torch of religion may be lighted in the church, but it has to do its burning out in the factory and in the stores and the schools and wherever we go. Jonah rose up to flee. Now look at the consequences. Number one, in verse 3, he went down to Joppa. There are four successive going down. Here, this is nothing new to you, but I felt impressed to lay it on our hearts again tonight. He went down to Joppa. He went down to a substitute, depending on some other plan. Instead of just doing what God said to do, he decided to go do what he wanted to do. He went down to Joppa. Now, actually, if you look at the map, in one sense, from Nineveh to Joppa is down. It's a little bit south. But uh, as far as where Jonah was at Gethhafer, near Nazareth, Joppa was an exciting city. You could say he was going up, because he was going up to where the bright lights are. He was going up where all the excitement was. Joppa was a city of excitement, where everybody came, and the salt crew, the seamen, from over Tarshish and the ends of the world were there. And they had brought news from over in Rome and over in, in uh, Spain and all the rest of the world. And Joppa was a thrilling, exciting place. You might say Jonah went up, but the Bible says he went down. When you go away from the will of God, you may become a millionaire. You may have the applause of the world. But if you substitute something else for God's plan for your life, you go down. You take a step down, not up. God doesn't measure up and down on the basis of applause, on the basis of bank accounts, on the basis of materialism, on the basis of the kind of car you drive or the clothes you wear. He looks inside our hearts. The man or the woman who has yielded his life to the will of God and is willing to say, here I stand, God being my helper, I can do nothing else. That person will go up. But Jonah went down. He substituted something else for dependence upon the Lord. Secondly, again, verse 3, so he paid the fare of, thereof, found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare thereof, and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to sin. Now, there's always a fare you have to pay when you get involved in sin. He, went, he paid the fare to get in that ship, and then he went down. You never get involved in sin, and sin is anything that separates you from the will of God. Anything that cools your enthusiasm for the Lord is sin. You never get involved in sin without paying a fare thereof because the wages of sin is death. And that wage has never been altered. The wages of sin against the mind 
is a dying of the ability of the mind to think. The wage of sin against the body is the dying of purity and eventually the dying of this body. The wages of the sin against truth is a loss of the sense of right and wrong and a conscience. The Bible speaks of a seared conscience. I believe some people have, been, have lived lives of deceit so long that it will take a spiritual revolution in their lives to get their minds straightened out so they'll have a conscience against sin. They just don't see black and right anymore. All they see is shadowy. They can't tell the difference between right and wrong. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1, the Bible uses that, that thought to express what happens to a man who turns away from the knowledge of God and he goes on the way he wants to go and he, he becomes vain in his foolish imagination. His thoughts are darkened and he begins to worship the created being rather than the creator. And God stands back and says, all right, go on. And God gives them up. Three times this is mentioned. And finally, the Bible says God gave them over to reprobate mind. What is that? Does that mean a, a man that cannot be retrieved? Oh, no. A reprobate mind is a mind that can no longer tell the difference between right and wrong. He thinks this is right. I've had people come to me convinced that their sin was right. I've counseled with couples who before marriage are living together and they say we care about each other. We love each other. You just don't understand. We love each other. We're not just lusting. We love each other. This is the reason we live together. And I turn to the Word of God and I say, God says that isn't God's will for you. That is not God's will. Oh, but they say, preacher, you don't understand. This is the way I feel about it. You see, they've lost the ability to recognize what God says as truth. God stands back and says, all right, if that's what you want to do, go on. That's a tragedy. And so Jonah paid the fare of his sin. He went down. He got in the ship to go from the presence of the Lord. Look in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man to his God and cast from the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it. So jo but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. The third consequence, he went down into the sleep of indifference. He didn't care anymore. Just didn't care. Making a difference to him. I've known some godly people who dabbled in sin allowed sin to get in their lives. And instead of really yielding to the will of God, instead of being concerned about the things of God, pretty soon they became indifferent to what God wanted them to do. They just didn't care. It didn't matter anymore. Does it matter to you? Some of you sitting in this room tonight, does it really matter to you? Or have you paid the fare? Have you gone down from God's plan, God's high pedestal of service, and his will and now you don't really care how sad how sad how tragic to no longer care to no longer have your heart moved one of the most remarkable persons I ever knew a number of years ago and listen to this please dear friend this is from my heart I felt impressed to preach this tonight this is from my heart 
nobody has reached the safety zone till we reach home. Don't forget that. You don't make a touchdown in football until you go beyond all the interference and go beyond all the opposing team and you cross the finish line. You cross over that goal post and then you've made the touchdown. So it is with our lives. You never reach the safety zone until you reach home. And it's not how you start, but how you finish that's important. One of the most remarkable persons I ever knew served the Lord, loved the Lord, went for God. And then he got the idea that he was too busy. And he began to slough off this. That's a dangerous thing when you become so busy for God that you begin to slough off this and put off this and put off something else. Somebody said, if you want to find somebody that will do something, find the busiest person you can find. They'll get it done. And so this person began to leave off this and leave off that. And, and when he would be asked to do a certain thing, he said, well, I just don't have time to do that. I, I, I'd like to, but I can't do it. Finally began to miss the services. That person who once was spiritually sensitive to the will of God today, when I sit down and try to talk with him, still a Christian? Well, if he ever was saved, he's still a Christian. But when I sit down to try to talk with him today, it's like talking to a brick wall. No spiritual communion at all, no contact. Just sits there, just sits there. Busy, busy in the things of the world. No time for God. Indifferent. Jonah was asleep in that ship, indifferent to the call of Christ. But notice another consequence. The end of this chapter, look in verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased her raging. He went down to the sea. Separation. The sea in the Scripture stands for separation. And so he was separated from the plan of God. Now what could have happened here? We're going to start here next Sunday night. You already know the answer, but I have some important things to say. But listen to this. He went down into the sea. He went down in separation from God. What happens when a Christian leaves God out of his life? He can have two results of that. He can either go on in his separation and go on in his collision course and his whole testimony be racked and ruined forever, or he can make a comeback. Thank God we serve a God who gives a second chance. And I'm going to preach on that next Sunday night the God of the second chance. But listen, tonight, why have to take a second chance? Why not tonight say, Lord, I don't want the judgment hand of God. I don't want to go away from God. I don't want to be somebody who's running from God. I want to run to God. I want to flee into his arms. Scripture says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. That means two things. Number one, if need be to be a martyr, 
commit your life so that, Lord, you could say, if necessary, I'll be a human bonfire. I'm willing to die for the faith of Christ. But I believe the other part of that verse means what God wants is when you enroll in His service, just have eyes for Him. Don't let anything sidetrack you. Just start walking toward Christ and serving Him day by day and with each passing moment. I'll serve the Lord until that wonderful day when He calls me over in His presence. Beloved friend, don't give up. Don't allow the sinister things of rebellion, self-will, the glitter of the world, the lust of the flesh to take you out of the will of God. Yield to Him. Be perfectly in His will. The safest place in the world is the circle and center of the will of God. Now, it's not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and God wants you saved. If you're here tonight and you've never been saved, God wants you to be saved. He wants you to yield your heart to Jesus Christ. Won't you do it? May we bow together in prayer, please. Every head bowed and every eye closed. With our hearts humbled before the Lord. Our Father, we pray that just now somebody who has been on the brink of turning away from God, of getting his eyes off of the Lord, will turn back to Christ. Look full in his wonderful face and allow the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, his grace. And those who are here without Jesus, May they come to Christ and trust Him as Savior and Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, please? We're going to sing God's invitation, hymn of invitation. That song says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. If you're in this auditorium tonight, I don't care if you're a Baptist or a Lutheran or an Episcopalian or a Catholic or the Church of Christ, whatever you are. If you're not positive beyond the shadow of a doubt that if your life were snuffed out right now that you'd go to be with Christ, you're not positive of that. You need to get positive of it before you leave here. You need to know that Christ is in your heart. You say, how can a person know that? The Bible says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he, Jesus, is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What have we committed to him? Our sins, our soul, our very being. But it's an act of the will. It's not something the church can do to you. It's not something the church can do for you. It's not something you can do for yourself. It's not something anybody else can do for you. It's not something that can be done for you at birth when someone dedicates you or baptizes you. It all is between your heart consciously and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
either accepting or rejecting what he did on the cross is enough to cleanse you from sin. Jesus talked about being born again. And the scripture says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again doesn't mean to be baptized. To be born again doesn't mean to join the church. To be born again doesn't mean to turn over a new life. It means to get a new life. It means to receive a new life. It means to have your sins washed in the blood of Christ. Would you turn to Jesus today and receive him as your Savior and your Lord? God help you to do it. God help you to do it. While we begin to sing, who will step out first for the King? Coming to say, Lord, I give you my heart. But you may say, but preacher, I, I can't join that church. I don't even live here. Or I don't, I, I don't want to come to this church. I'm not necessarily asking you to join this church. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, I want to ask you to join Jesus. To come to him. Receive him as your Savior and your Lord. And then from inside of you, he will direct you where to go, what to do. But would you come to him today just as you are? And if you're already a Christian, God has been dealing with your heart, would you yield to his will? I believe there are young men, young women here tonight that God is calling to the mission fields. God is calling to preach. God is calling into his service. Would you surrender to him? While we begin to sing, who will step out first for the king?